0: Hello, this is Gerard Robinson, and welcome to another wonderful week where you have a chance to listen to someone named Kara, someone named Gerard, talk about education <laughs> on the learning curve. I always get a good laugh when I do something that's unexpected, and yeah. what I found unexpected is reading an article in U.S. Today newspaper by Susan Page, and she said, "Here's the title: Back to School." One in five teachers are unlikely to return to the open classroom this fall poll says, and this is from a uh, USA Today poll where one in five teachers say they're just not likely to come back even if schools open. And this could have a major impact on schools because of a people uh, submitting resignations. And some people who may not officially submit a resignation may say that I'm only going to go back to the classroom once I'm sure that it's safe for me to do so and safe for the students and staff. So however it, it plays out, you know, that's that's pretty alarming, one in five. And so for lawmakers and philanthropists and others who are trying to figure out how to bring some to this, let's make sure we think about teachers and what they're saying. And I like polls, and this was a Good poll that shows some interesting results and so we'll see how to, pl- how to play out in the next uh, four or five months.
1: Yeah Gerard, no thanks for this story and great to hear your voice. Is This is just, um, reading this made me think, wow we've really not been talking about teachers much and not in the right way just in the national conversation. We've been preoccupied as we should be with kids with families, with um, schools, will they will they open? Will they reopen? How will they open? What will it look like? And when we talk about teachers, we've been talking mainly about are they getting it right? Are they getting it wrong? Professional development, etc. And it really has sidelined the conversation, like failing to recognize that you know we've got kids in. in and families that are more vulnerable to this, we also have teachers who are more vulnerable to this, who have their own families to think about, or have their own children to think about, and who, who need, there's so many considerations. So I really think that this is an important thing um, to watch. And it also, you know, brings to mind the extent to which we generally fail to truly incorporate teacher voice into any of these conversations, whether it's with policymakers. And of course, you know, we have organizations, I know, at the top level um, that represent teachers, but that's, that's not the same thing as teacher voice. It's a different function um, and 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 those organizations do their jobs, but really the voices of individual teachers. And I think that the best school leaders are the ones who are on the ground listening to what their teachers need, not just now, but what they're going to need in the fall. And um, I think about the parents that are going to be pulling away and upset, um, when their favorite teachers aren't coming back. So this is an important one. I hope we talk about it more. Um, my story of the week this week too, I think pretty important. Also, interestingly, USA Today must be killing it this week because this one's from USA Today too, but we, we chose both these stories because I think they're pretty great. This one is, um, by Kristen Lamb and Aaron Richards at more U.S. schools teach in English and Spanish, but not enough to help Latino kids. I tell you what, I really appreciated this article for a couple reasons. The first is that it gives a pretty lengthy and pretty great description of sort of like the, the wars in this country in the past few decades around um, how we teach non-native speakers around conceptions and perceptions of language education, with, be it bilingual, sheltered English emergent, all of these different programs that states have have um, sometimes legislated, right, uh, like how kids, especially those who um, who are new to this country, learn English. And one of the really fascinating um, points that this article makes, it talks about the growing, not only effectiveness of, and I'll use this really carefully because I think it's important, high quality dual language programs, like high quality bilingual education. So we've known for a long time in this country, there were huge questions of quality of some programs, which in many cases led states to actually legislate that students were not to learn through bilingual education. Um, And I recommend this article as a read for how that all played out. But there's research cited in this article that says, actually, when bilingual education is done well, it can be great for students. And the fact of the matter is that um, many parents, especially parents of means, seem to know that and have always wanted sort of, not always wanted, but many want their student, their children, to be bilingual. Many of us are very proud of the fact, you know, if our children are bilingual. But what that's led to is some um, middle and upper, upper middle class parents um, sort of swarming these dual bilingual, dual language immersion programs where available in their school districts, which in in effect is pushing out the kids who actually need it the most. Meaning non-native speakers, people who are new to this country. It's a fascinating article, you know, that really outlines not only the, the history of language education in this country, English language education, but also um, gets at the tug of war between, you know, this, the, the idea that certain populations just continue to be pushed out of something that was at one time supposed to be, you know, for them. <laughs> so fascinating read, highly recommended to our listeners.
0: That's a great one. Thanks for sharing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Gerard. So coming up right after this, we—I'm—I'm I'm so excited for this because this is sort of a new twist on this show. We are going to be speaking to Dana Joya, who is a poet, writer, um, former head of the National Endowment for the Arts, and former poet laureate of California. So um, I'm looking for something, you know, to sort of preoccupy us, get our, get our thoughts in a different direction these days and uplift us. And I think he's got, he's got a lot to say about arts education in, in this country. So coming up right after this. So we're so pleased to have with us today, Dana Joya, an internationally acclaimed poet and writer. He's the former California poet laureate and chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. He was born in Los Angeles of a working-class Italian and Mexican-American family. Under Joya's direction, NEA's work included Reading at Risk, To Read or Not to Read, A Question of National Consequence, Poetry Out Loud, The Big Read, and Shakespeare in American Communities, which brought wide public attention to the importance of reading, drama, and the arts. He has published five full-length collections of verse, most recently, 99 Poems, New and Selected, from 2016, winning the Poets' Prize as the best new book of the year, while his work has also appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The Nation, Poetry, The New York Times Book Review, and The Hudson Review. Joya has been awarded 10, (laughs) 10 honorary doctorates. And in 2010, he received the University of Notre Dame's Latare Medal, the oldest and most prestigious honor given to American Catholics. He received a BA and an MBA from Stanford and an MA from Harvard in comparative literature. Dana, thank you so much for being with us on The Learning Curve today. Welcome.
2: I'm glad to be here.
1: Well, we are we are very happy to have you. I think this is gonna be a real treat for our listeners. Um, I wanted to start out by asking you about your 2007 Stanford commencement address, which has been recognized as among the, the best of our era. I mean, what, what an honor. You observed that the real purpose of arts education is to create complete human beings capable of leading successful and productive lives in a free society. So we'd love for you to talk to us and to the listening audience about why the arts are so pivotal to the healthy intellectual and civic development of America's school children.
2: Arts education is essential for education. If you are not being uh, instructed in the arts and through the arts, you are probably not getting a very good education. Now, having said that, uh, I think it's important to stress the fact that almost no one seems to understand the role of arts in education. Uh, Our grandparents, or my grandparents, and probably your great-grandparents, understood it just naturally, but uh, our professionalized educational system has missed the point. When you bring artists into schools, And almost every level, they see themselves as training future artists. That's not the purpose of arts education. The people that are running educational systems don't want to do the arts because it's another expanse and it's this, that, and the other. And they say, well, it's not not one of those things that gets tested. Uh, It's a very simple thing to explain as long as you forget uh, what you've been taught about education. We... Uh, learn about the world and we engage in the world in different ways. One of the ways that we can engage with the world is to think through the world, think about it conceptually, but most of the time, uh, nearly all of us experience the world in a kind of holistic fashion in which our thoughts, our emotions, our sensations mix with our imagination, our intellect, our physical bodies. That is the natural language of human beings, but that is not the natural language of mathematics, of a grammar, of history, of all the conceptual learning that we're doing in schools as part of our formal curriculum. So what the arts do, and that you think about, do you have a school right now that's all these kids crammed into a room and they've got one narrow doorway that they push you through, which is analytical thought. They have a door and back called athletics, Uh, but let's put, you know, let's ignore that right now. And people are smart enough. They are smart enough not to eliminate uh, athletics because people understand that you learn things playing sports you don't learn otherwise. It's exactly the same for the arts. And I suggest we simply create another doorway in which during your eight years or 12 years or 16 years of formal education, your training, your imagination, uh, your emotions, uh, your experiential knowledge. Uh, So when you're learning, you know, so they'll say, well, we don't, you know, uh, when we give you a poem, we have you do the poem so that you can analyze the poem. Why? Because it's all about analytical thought. But if you go back to our great grandparents, they uh, used poems to teach elocution, They uh, used poems to teach history. They used poems at public presentations. They recited poems chorally in the same way that they sang, uh, that they drew, because they understood each and every one of these activities develops a human capacity in the young person. Uh, And if we're not very good at measuring that with multiple-choice tests, the problem is the test, not the learning. Uh, And so all I'm suggesting is that we Think about the role of education is not to put kids uh, perform well on tests, but to make kids who can perform well in life. And singing, drawing, poetry, uh, things like that, theater, uh, are fundamental in doing that. I can give you many, many examples, but I've already talked enough.
1: Well, no, I, I, I take your point. I, I think it's a compelling one, and I think that the point of you know if the test can't measure that, then um, then maybe we need something different. Uh, Can you say something. I'm not anti-test. I love tests. No, 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 no. Tests. We could argue that absolutely there there's a role for testing, but I I hear you saying that there's something there's so much more beyond that, which leads me to ask. Um, you know, in this moment, we're thinking so much about the digital divide, but we can't forget about the divides that have always existed. And I'd love to hear your thoughts or commentary on access to the arts. So who gets it, who doesn't? And how does that contribute to uh, call it whatever you'd like, the the achievement gap, the access gap? But is it is it by and large wealthy or upper middle class families and who can send their children to schools where they have access to the arts, or do you see this as a problem across um, across populations, across demography? The,
2: the answer is, uh, as in so many things about uh, social edu- and educational issues, it's complicated. Generally, wealth does not prevent your access to the arts because you can sing, you can do poetry, you can draw uh, with really minimal materials. Now, if you're saying that uh, and I believe that it's great to go to the Metropolitan Opera, it's great to go to the New York Philharmonic, it's you know it's great to go to the San Francisco Ballet, but we're not talking about this. We're talking about um, those things that, once again, if you go back 80 years ago, when the United States was a poorer nation, you would not find a school that didn't have music, didn't have art, uh, didn't have poetry, didn't have theater. It, it's, no matter what the budget of the school, what happened is they began adding all this very expensive superstructure on this, and all of this kind of apparatus above it, which made it unaffordable. Which meant that most schools cancel it. Now, uh, a lot of people are smart enough to say, "Well, if I'm, my kid is not getting it in school, I'll give them dance lessons. I'll get them music lessons. I'll let them, uh, you know, go to some kind of a of a summer camp where they work in these things." But we could, uh, at minimal, at minimal cost, uh, add these things back. When I was a I went to a, a, a working class parochial school. There were between 50 and 60 students in every class. So the, the nuns had a, about 55, 60 students in their class. Uh, one of the things we did, we spent a half an hour every morning singing. Nobody does that anymore. It didn't, you know, it doesn't really cost very much. I guess you have to have a couple of, you have to have some songbooks, but they can be you, reused year, year. We spent about a half an hour a day just drawing. Uh the, the the sister had no instruction in that. I mean, she you know would do with something, but you learn, I mean you think about this singing, you're learning uh to use your voice, your hearing, your physical body to produce sounds. Singers speak better. You know, drawing, you're learning eye hand coordination, as well as your your skills in visualizing. Uh, so all of these things develop things that you use every day. Now uh, it would be great, and I tried, at the, when I was chairman of the NEA, I tried, uh, I brought several million kids into their first production of Shakespeare, which for most of them was the first time they ever saw a live piece of spoken theater. That was important, but you don't need something at that level level, to be able to make kids have access, you know, to the, uh, this kind of, think about this, this alternate language which is experiential, which touches our everyday existence that we tend to uh, best explore through the arts.
1: Yeah, I think that's fascinating because in, on the one hand, we, we could absolutely put it back in schools. And I think so many parents and educators and others are, are for that. We're also seeing creative efforts in many states to help families access the arts, among other things in the form of creative sort of like summertime learning accounts and others for families who can't afford to say, well, my school's not offering a music class, therefore I would like my child to have it and I yeah. think that there's there's certainly a lot we could we could be doing I, I don't most, want to most oh, schools, oh, please, well,
2: say something and this is this is an expert opinion because I was running the NEA unfortunately, most schools in the United States, most public schools and actually you know probably most p- private schools I, I don't really know the private statistics do not really offer uh, very much, if anything, in the arts. So it is a national problem. And anybody yeah. uh, you know, who is trying to educate young people uh, you know, really has to deal with this issue.
1: I feel like I need to call my child's teacher and thank her for all of the artwork she's been um, asking him to do while we've been at home in quarantine. <laughs> um, given, your, given your experience, I feel it would be remiss not to ask. So you are, at the same time, a poet who's chaired the NEA, but you, you also have an MBA. Um, and you've had a full business career. And so, so much emphasis on workforce development, um, in the country's K to 12 education system right now. And you've clearly already spoken to the importance of arts education. How do you feel other than bringing the arts back into school to, to start to correct, um, how do we strike a balance between those two things? Does a balance need to be struck between those two things?
2: I think the situation is actually more complicated than that. It is a fiction that somehow our current education system is doing this great job of teaching these necessary skills to enter the economy, and that's the reason why they're not doing the arts. The fact is they're not doing a very good job of anything. Reading scores are going down, vocabulary is going down, mathematical scores are going down. Uh, I have been teaching for 10 years. At an elite university university of southern california uh one of the top two dozen schools in the united states and my students uh really know nothing about history they know very little about the sciences unless they're majoring in science they have uh, very you know uh, poor knowledge about all sorts of things uh, what they have been trained to do well is to take tests to get them in a place like usc uh i think part of the problem actually is that they no longer use the arts in the way they used to. Uh, when they would show you paintings of historical events, you would recite poems about historical events. You, you know, you would do, uh, you know, music. That it was historical music, you know, the, you know everything from, from uh, Negro uh, spirituals to uh, patriotic songs. all these things that have all of this cultural coding. Uh, if you had people do theater, poetry, I guarantee you, their reading scores would go up. Their their uh, verbal skills would go up. I suspect with music, their math scores, uh, you know, would go up. So the problem is, is that our educational system is broken at nearly every level, except for you know elite academies. Uh, and I actually think some homeschools do a pretty good job. Uh, and I, I wouldn't have thought that before I started teaching, but I've observed that my students who actually know how to read well are disproportionately educated in home schools.
0: Dana, this is Gerard, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. I also grew up in Los Angeles to working class uh, family. So it's always good to see someone from LA with a similar background doing uh, very, very good things. Here's a question you, and it, it relates more to, to philosophy, and I mentioned it in part because when I decided to major in philosophy as a kid from working class uh, background, you can imagine my parents yeah. initial response. Uh, they were concerned for many years. Uh, but in Plato's Republic, he wrote, and I quote, musical training is a more potent instrument than any other because rhythm, rhyme, harmony find their way into the inward places of the soul on which they mightily fasten, end of quote. Could you explain to our listeners why poetry has such a profound, timeless connection to the human experience?
2: Well, in human history, across every culture I've ever studied, poetry plays a fundamental role in education. Now, why? Well, I think people understood that poetry allows you to teach many different things through pleasure and through whole kind of complete human participation. You get a, uh, when I teach poetry, I make them memorize a poem in the first week and they all go, Oh my God, how can you do this? You know, that's the sort of thing you should be doing for a final. But as soon as somebody memorizes a poem, uh, suddenly they get this very complicated experiential knowledge of emotions and words, ideas and sounds, all of these things which are deeply related in human experience, but we never study. Uh, And so if you start to educate kids through poetry, one of the things you're doing is educating their emotions. If you take you know, a six-year-old and you produce somebody at 18 with largely the same level of emotional development, you're in trouble. And yet we are doing that. See, what, what poems allow you to do, what literature allows you to do, what theater allows you to do, is for a young person to take on a, a, an experience, death, war, love, terror, whatever, of an, of outside of their everyday realm of experience and inhabit it imaginatively, so they are ready for it. So what happens is it's like an emotional calisthenic class. It also, uh, uh, if you're reciting, teaches them to speak clearly. Uh, so if you think of music, and I'm, I, Gerard, I don't know if you were trained in a musical instrument. I mean, I learned more in, through music than I did anything else in, in my uh, upbringing because music is the only art that you can get good instruction in if you're poor. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, And what music taught me was not only, you know, eye, ear, hand, mind coordination, which is, you know, you're doing, reading a score, producing sounds. It also taught me social skills and how to listen to what other people are doing, how to do things together, how to interrelate with all these people, how to follow a conductor, how to take the lead when you needed to take the lead. And... I had no idea how much I was learning until, uh, you know, really afterwards when I, you know, I suddenly had these human skills I did not have otherwise. And so, you know, what I think what Plato understood, and I think Aristotle understood it in a different way, you know, empirically, uh, is that when you're involved in music, when you're involved in poetry, you are in a kind of a rapture. Uh, now, Plato saw that, thought this rapture was, was also dangerous. That's why he was worried about poetry. Because you know, when he's thinking of poetry, he's you know, think about in contemporary terms a rock concert where people are all moving with the music and one with the music and doing mm-hmm. these things where they become irrational. And, and Plato was very frightened of irrational behavior. But he also understood that there are all of these impulses in the human being that need to be developed, refined. And so that's what I, you know, I think of it the what, what purpose of arts education is to awaken the human potential in people to develop it uh, in a way that wouldn't be developed through other means and to refine it into skills which are transformative to that person's existence.
0: That's one of the best summations I've ever heard of uh, Plato's ideas of music. And as you know, he was also concerned about uh, democracy. Uh, as we know it today, which was so linked to what you just mentioned. Uh, I went to Catholic schools in Los Angeles and that- Which ones? Uh, I went to St. John the Evangelist, yeah. which was off 60th and Quinshaw, and my I know, high school- I, I know the school, I know the school. High school was St. Bernard High School.
2: Oh, you went to St. Bernard. I, used to, you know, I went to Sarah. I know Sarah well. Although I went out with a girl from St. Bernard's when I was a senior. You know. So, you know, I know.
0: Yeah. And no, no no, names, because I'm sure that our circles are pretty small. So <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, your question about an instrument. No, I grew up uh, in a home where we listened to a lot of music. I did not learn how to play an instrument. The closest would have been uh, playing the tabletop as I yeah. listened to uh, Parliament Funkadelic. But that was, that was about it.
1: <laughs> pretty good. That's show. a training. It's a training <laughs> of sorts.
0: You mentioned literature. And so... Many people can recall parents or grandparents who, although they didn't have much formal education, as you mentioned, already they would cite poetry. And, and you, you talked a great deal about that. I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, you know, a UVA uh, a student many years ago. This is more of a follow-up to something you just said, as it relates to Plato. Students were complaining about having to memorize a poem, and yet they somehow can memorize rap songs, uh, rock songs and others. Is there something that we could do differently uh, as educators to instill the interest of learning how to memorize poetry or literature in the way we do currently with music?
2: Well, you know, Jordan, I think you've put your finger on something I've almost never heard anybody mention, but it is so true. This is one of my fundamental awarenesses when I'm a teacher. You've got these kids that are using this part of their brain uh, you know you know it's like like my students they don't know uh, you they don't know any poems I said well who knows some hip-hop you know all the guys raise their hands they they re- recite these elaborate complicated long you know rap lyrics and they've got that intelligence in their uh their mind but they don't connect it to literature and the same thing one of my you know one of the things I do in classes I'll just you know I'm talking about in rhythm I'll just take a uh, it's my set of keys, and I'll just toss it across the, the lecture hall towards a student who looks to me like he's reasonably athletic. And the guy always just grabs it, catches it. And I go, did I tell you to catch it? He goes, no. I said, did you plan to catch it? Well, no. I said, what you've got is all this instinctive uh, intelligence in your body, and they aren't bringing that to poetry. And so what, you know, what poetry does is it integrates all kinds of things. When my students memorize their first poem, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, this was the second time I ever, I've tried to avoid teaching, uh, my adult life. Uh, now that's a whole nother, you know, because as a writer, I think it's, I think it's a difficult thing for a writer to do, but, uh, you know, when I needed money, I, I had to teach. So I'm at Sarah Lawrence. I'm teaching a graduate class and I've got, you know, 12, uh, uh, young women and one young man. They're all doing a master's degree. So they all want to be professional poets. They've never ever memorized a poem. Uh, and so... I say, well, we're going to memorize a Shakespeare sonnet, and so we go around the room. and My best student, I got this super A student who's sitting at my right hand, and she starts to do it. and You know, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more love. And I realize she has memorized it on the wrong side of her brain. She's Mm. memorized it on the visual side, not and so not on the uh, musical side. and Going around, and everybody's just doing terrible, terrible things. Now, I get about two thirds of the way through, and I have my worst student. This is a girl who was just a disaster. Everybody treated her like a disaster. Uh, you know, and she was, you know, she, you know, I was really, you know, anyway. So I said, Well, would you recite yours? Because they're just te- one terrible recitation after another. She says, Well, I didn't recite, I didn't memorize any of them. But I said, Well, why not? She goes, I don't like them. I said, I gave you, you know, 12 of the greatest poems in English, and you don't like them? No, I don't like them. I, was, I said, did you do anything? She says, well, I noticed that when Romeo and Juliet meet, uh, they speak back and forth, and it makes a sonnet. And I said, oh, did you memorize She says, I did. And she goes, you know, and if you remember, this is where Romeo and Juliet meet, and he touches her hand. You know, which in the Renaissance is a big thing. Mm-hmm. And, and he's trying to apologize, you know, he's trying to say, is this okay? He goes... If I profane with my unworthy hand this holy shrine, my gentle sin is this. My lips too blushing pilgrims stand to smooth the rough touch with a tender kiss. To which Juliet responds, good pilgrim, you do wrong your hands too much. Which mannerly devotion show in this. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch. And palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. And she goes on. And she's just wonderful. And so then I go through the rest of them. You know, Shall I compare thee to a summer day? And finally, without even thinking, at the very end, I said, would you recite yours again? She just wanted to get the other stuff out of my ear. And she recited it again. And suddenly, all my A students realized there was something in poetry that they'd been ignoring that this girl they thought was stupid knew. And they had missed it. From that moment on, she became one of my best students. And everybody treated her better. Uh, and so you look at this now, it's, you see this the same thing in theater where you get these, these all these misadjusted kids get together and decide to put on a play. Uh, and by about three weeks into the rehearsals, they all say, you know, I'm not so misadjusted because there's other people kind of like me. We're just a different kind of person. Then about, you know, six weeks into the rehearsals, they say, you know, I'm not misadjusted, I just got skills, and man, just look at the skills that I've got. I've got all this learning, I've got all this kind of power I didn't realize. And then on opening night, they do this, and the people that they don't think like them applaud. And so you see this this arc of of personal and social transformation happening through the arts. My mother was a working class Mexican woman, um, you know, know, from LA, LA Latin community. Mm-hmm. And uh, she loved poetry. She learned poems in what in grammar school. The evil teachers had made her memorize poems. Uh, and these were very precious to her. And you know, and I think it was because the, the these Poem. I didn't understand when I was a kid. She was always reciting poems, you know. She'd go, it was many and many a year ago in this kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And that maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea. And we loved with a love that was more than a love. I and my Annabelle Lee. And my mother would recite these things and, and it cast a spell over me. So at a very early age, I knew I kind of liked poetry or I liked at least being in this kind of spell that was very much similar to when my dad would put on jazz records or, uh, you know, or, you know, you know, old dance records. And I, but, you know, I didn't quite know how to get there or what it meant, but uh, I didn't really understand what my mother, but I think in retrospect, when I became uh Middle age, I understood my mother had this terrible, terrible, brutal poverty that she was raised in. She lost her mother, her father was an alcoholic, and these poems gave her a vision of a different life, a vision of the imagination, of emotions, of love. Uh, It gave her the words to articulate her sadness. Uh, And most people in our society do not have the ability to articulate their own states of being, especially in extreme moments of happiness or sadness. And so what poetry was for her, for this woman who was in some ways denied the sort of education that she would have so greatly profited by, it gave her uh, a way, in a sense, of developing herself as a human being. And I I think that we owe it to our children to allow them, uh, in a sense, to grow spiritually, emotionally, creatively, imaginatively, and dare I say, even physically. I make my students memorize it, and I go, Mrs., you know, Miss Chang, I cannot understand what you're saying. she'll course, gets a little bit louder, a little bit louder. But, you know, by, in a minute or two, she's speaking in this voice that the entire class can understand. The guy who comes up there, you know, uh, you know, you know Mr. Reynolds, like, you're mumbling. And you do this, and you're te- giving them the physical power to project their voice to make themselves un- understood. These are not small human skills. Absolutely.
0: What you just shared reminds me a great deal that when we talk about the human experience or we refer to ourselves as human beings, we often do so as if it is a subject or a noun, when in fact what you describe with poetry and literature is that we're humans being, and the action is being enlightened, uh, being removed, being encouraged. And so your student, uh, who was able to be looked at differently because you empowered her was her being more than yeah. just a human being.
2: Exactly. You know, you, we need, I mean, and once again, we, people think they're doing this, but they do it so badly. We need to give students esteem, self-esteem. You don't get it by saying, you know, that's wonderful. Oh, You're the greatest. You're a special snowflake. You get it uh, by having them do things in which they make progress, in which they themselves understand, you know, with, you know uh, that they're getting better, that they're mastering things, that they're getting good at something. Now, not everybody's good at math. Not everybody's good, you know, at analytical thinking. That's why we have sports, but it's also why we should have theater, why we should have band. Uh, you know, I created this thing, this program called Poetry Out Loud. It is a national high school Poetry recitation contest. When we brought the idea to the arts experts in the 50 states and District of Columbia, they all said, "Oh, terrible! Kids don't like poetry. Uh, memorizing poems is repressive, and to perform any art in competition is degrading." Uh, and you know, now this was before America's Got Talent, Dancing with the Stars, when. Mm-hmm. You know, suddenly everybody realized it's much more exciting and so they fought us I only had one state, Pennsylvania that wanted to do it but we convinced them to try it for one year and then when it failed they could use the money for something else needless to say from the moment we began it uh, we discovered kids love poetry teenagers love poetry I mean that's in some ways what poetry's greatest audience is secondly uh, that uh that, you know, they loved memorizing. They said, well, you know, memorization, it's going to be discriminated against minorities and immigrants. Nearly every year, uh, the national winner is either African-American or foreign-born because these are the people who understand the power that articulation gives them in society. And, and you know, thirdly, the audience loves the competition. The, you these people who love seeing arts performed where they're you know, trying to paying attention because even you have to sort of triangulate your attention. Uh, and, and one of the things I told them, uh, and they didn't believe me, I said, you're, you're a student, your a English student is not going to win the class, win the, you know, the, the high school competition. Okay. It's going to be a class clown. It's going to be an athlete who never says anything in class, or it's going to be your theater queens. You know, now that's more predictable. The theater people, they're going to love to do this. But you have these people that are football players. uh, You have these people that are like, have, you know, C minus averages that are winning the state championships. And what we've finally done, you think about the metaphor I give you about the classroom. We've opened up a door that they can walk through as a winner. And that transforms their lives. You know, and you do this on a, you know, because what happens is the A students realize they're not as good at this as, as maybe the, the B or C students are. And it and it enriches and it improves the social dynamics of the, of the classroom.
0: Will you honor us by reading a poem of your choosing to speak to where we are, our lives and the meaning of poetry and literature?
2: Well, that's a lot to ask for a single poem. Uh, <laughs> uh, This is a poem, it's a very complicated poem, but it it actually does that. Uh, You know, in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, Shakespeare says, or, you know, the character says, uh, the lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact, which is to say the lunatic, the lover, and the poet are all crazy. Uh, But the kind of craziness that they have allows the lover to discover things about love that the person not in love misses. It allows the poet to see things about the world, uh, you know, that other people uh, don't notice. And so this poem's about two things. It's about the fact that we lead our lives as stories. And as our life changes, we have to change the story of our life. Uh, and that is why we need to teach literature in schools, because children need to know how many possible stories there are that they, they can inhabit. They need to know how they can come into danger and have an escape, have a rescue. They can lose a friend but find another one. And, I, and I've seen this. People I know that are most in trouble, and, couldn't people that commit suicide, are people who are stuck in a story they can't figure out a way of getting out of. So that's the first thing this poem is about. The second thing is that love, romantic love, sexual love, which is to say the love that you would base a marriage on, is mostly talk. It's mostly palaver. It's a conversation that never ends. And and you know when you are in love because if something happens to you, it's not entirely real until you tell your beloved about it, until you, in a sense... Bring it into the story you share. This is a double sonnet. It's called, it's written to my wife, and it's called The Lunatic, The Lover, and The Poet. The tales we tell are either false or true, but neither purpose is the point. We weave the fabric of our own existence out of words. And the right story tells us who we are. Perhaps it is the words that summon us. The tale is often wiser than the teller. There is no naked truth but what we wear. So let me bring this story to our bed. The world, I say, depends upon a spell spoken each night by lovers unaware of their own sorcery. In innocence or agony, the same words must be said, or the restless moon will darken in the sky, the night grows still, the winds of dawn expire. And if I'm wrong, it cannot be by much. We know our own existence came from touch, the new soul summoned into life by lust, And love's shy tongue awakens in such fire of flesh on flesh and midnight whispering as if the only purpose of desire were to explore its infinite unfolding. And so, my love, we are two lunatics, secretaries to the wordless moon lying awake together or apart, transcribing every touch or aching absence into our endless intimate palaver, body to body, naked to the night, appareled only in our utterance. Very platonic poem, um, you know, the notion of the power of the word into into very Christian poem, perhaps even too, you know, and the power of the word to change reality.
1: Well, it was absolutely beautiful. And I think that I'm, I bet I'm speaking for many of our listeners when I say this is just absolutely um, some of what we need to hear in this time Uh, with just great appreciation to you for being with us today and for sharing the work and and your ideas. It's been an amazing conversation. Um, Listeners, This has been Dana Joya, internationally acclaimed poet and writer. Dana, thank you so very, very much for being with us today. It's been a true pleasure.
2: It's been my pleasure and, and good luck with your important enterprise. There's nothing more important than forming the next generation because we're forming the future.
1: Wow. Thank you so much. That was phenomenal.
2: That was wonderful.
0: Thank you.
1: And with us next week, I'm pretty excited for this one. Pioneer Institute, pretty excited for this one. This is uh, our, our home state and really interesting smart guy. Commissioner Jeff Riley is going to be with us next week. He is the commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. And uh, edgy wonks out there. will also know him as um, someone who uh, really made huge strides in turning around one of Massachusetts um Uh, most underperforming school districts and is doing much better today so we'll be talking to commissioner riley and excited to hear especially at this time a state chief's take on on the current moment talk to you next week